Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. It's my great good pleasure to welcome Dan Pink to the Uncomfortable Truth. Uh, Dan is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, which is his brand new book. Uh, he's written When, A Whole New Mind, Drive, and my personal favorite, To Sell is Human, which I think is, is marvelous. Uh, Dan is uh, the um, co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel. It airs in more than 100 countries. He hosts a popular master class on sales and persuasion. He's appeared frequently on NPR, PBS, ABC, CNN, and probably anything else with initials, apparently. His articles and essays have also appeared in the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review. From 1995 to 97, he was chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. He has a BA from Northwestern. He was a Truman Scholar and elected to Phi Beta Kappa. And he has a degree from Yale Law School. And I personally know he's never practiced one day of law. Do I have that right? You have that, especially that last point. You have that completely right. I was they they pretty much they pretty much banned me, prohibited me from ever practicing law. <laughs> sort of a reverse bar exam, I guess. Yeah, so. exactly. It was it was they they put the bar in bar exam. They bar barred me bar. from yeah. So I'm going to start by uh, sharing a regret I have with you. Yes. And I want you to tell me about it. Maybe I can get some free analysis here. But uh, some <laughs> years ago, one of my clients took me and another consultant who who helped him. He was our client, uh, deep sea fishing. And we went off Montauk and left at three in the morning. It took us five hours to get off the continental shelf. We saw whales sound and everything. And each of us caught a bluefin tuna. And 30 minutes after I caught that tuna, I felt bad. I felt bad for removing this fish from the sea. I've often thought of that as I've supported animal rights groups and, and conservation and so forth. Is, is this a foundational regret according to your book or is it more of a moral regret? Uh, I would put it in my categorization as a moral regret. Um, you, um, you, you, you did the wrong. Th you, you, you did something that violated your own moral code. And I think the interesting thing about that is, and it's a great example, is like, what do you do with that regret? Mm. Okay. So, so on the one hand, you could say, put your fingers. Oh, no regrets. That's in the past. It doesn't matter. It's like you know, I don't have any regrets. I can't do anything to change that. You know, uh, why dwell on the past? I want to be positive. All right. That's a bad idea. You could also go the other way, Alan, and say, oh, my God, I am the worst person in the world. I'm an absolute <laughs> treacherous terror to the environment who leaves a muddy footprint wherever I go and I'm worthless. <laughs> That's a bad idea, too. Um, what you can do is you can say, but I think it's really interesting. It's a really good one is you can say, oh, wait a second. I feel bad about this. Like I have this negative feeling. What is this negative feeling telling me? And what it's doing is it's clarifying what you value and it's instructing you on how to do better. It's saying, wait a second, I value um, being respectful of the ecosystem, being respectful of other organisms. And it's instructing me like I got to do better in the future. And that's a healthy way to deal with regret. So that's the moving forward part that you speak about. Right, right. So in, in Sinatra's uh, My Way, he says, you know, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I never quite believed that line. You know, it seems to me anybody who achieves great fame and, and great status has to have a hell of a lot of regrets. I was wondering, you know, uh, psychologists enter the field to straighten out their own lives, basically. Uh, in your case, did you find relish in attacking the subject because you were working on regrets? 
Yeah, that's a big part of it, actually. Um, and I, you know, I had, reg- I, you know, I had regrets. I, it was, it was really kind of. I mean, for for the writers out there, I think it's maybe somewhat interesting. Is that you know, there's no way I would have written this book in my 30s. Uh, I'm in my 50s now. Um, I, when I was in my 30s, I didn't have enough mileage on me to write a book about. Reg- I didn't have enough mileage to write a book about regret. But in my thir- in my 50s, suddenly I look up, as many of us do, and I'm like, holy crap! Like. I got my, there's there's time and like whoa wait a second where you know and and you look backward and because you're human there are things you wish you had done there are things you wish you hadn't done there are things you wish you had done differently and what I found is is that um, you know the, the conventional view was that nobody ever wanted nobody wanted to talk about regret but when I began talking about my own regrets with people very sheepishly very sheepishly very tenderly very gingerly I found the response was that everybody wanted to talk about it that it sort of unleashed this 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 wave where where people wanted to talk about this and as a writer that's a very um that's a very good sign but but i mean to your point you know about psychologists i mean for you know for researchers there's this old line that all research is me search and yeah. so i think that was i think that was true in my case i was wondering you know now you've kind of uh, in my opinion cleverly separated these into four areas foundation boldness moral and connection and I was yeah. wondering, uh, is one of these worse than the others? Worse? In what way? Well, the regret is deeper. Uh, it's hard oh. to atone for, that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, I, I, what, what I know, uh, my guess is going to be no. Uh, what, what I do know from, again, just to take a step back, is that you know I, I came up with these categories after collecting regrets from all over the world. We now have a database of 22,000 regrets from 109 countries and found remarkable similarity across all these regrets from you know, all, over the, all over the place. And um, the, the biggest category were these connection regrets, if only I'd reached out, regrets about relationships, um, about love, and again, not only romantic love, but just the full spectrum of love. Um, I have a sense, and I don't know that these, that the connection regrets are the ones that hit the deepest because it might represent something, you know, sort of the, one of the most fundamental things about our lives, which is that we know that a good life is a life where we have uh, relationships with people who we care about and who care about us. And when we do stuff to mess that up, it feels pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you talk in here about. Uh, these phrases, at least and if onlys. Could you could you just describe those a bit and explain them? Sure. I, you know the engine power. You, 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 one of the things, if I in studying regret, it, for me at least, is that I just have new respect for this the the awesomeness of the human brain and the things that we can do with our minds and our and our brains. And one of the things that we can do, and sort of the engine that powers this this particular emotion, is counterfactual thinking. That we we can imagine situations that run counter to the actual facts. I don't think, I'm looking outside my window here, there's like a squirrel. I don't think the squirrel out there can do counterfactual thinking, that's my guess. Um, and and um, there are two kinds of counterfactual thinking. Uh, there is what's known as a downward counterfactual, where we imagine how things could have turned out worse. You know, um, uh, I shouldn't have married uh, uh, Edward, but at least I have these two great kids. Okay, so you find the silver lining of that. So, uh, terrible decision to marry Edward, but it could have been even worse. I could have married Edward and not had these two great kids. All right, that's an at least a downward counterfactual. There's also an upward counterfactual, um, where you imagine how things could have turned out better. So you say, 
uh, if only I had moved to um, uh, uh, California rather than, than Washington, D.C., um, I would um, have had a nicer house and a bigger yard and more opportunities for leisure. So you imagine how things could have turned out better. And what the research tells us is this, at least downward counterfactuals make us feel better. Um, upward counterfactuals make us feel worse, but upward counterfactuals done right can help us do better. They can be a source of improvement. And I think what's tricky about this emotion of regret is that everybody wants the improvement, but they don't want the negative feeling. And that's not the deal. Um, that is, that is these upward counterfactuals, these if onlys make us help us do better because they make us feel worse. You know, your downward counterfactuals, when I read about them, what struck me is they're a bit of a rationalization. Sure. And, and Dan Gilbert up in Harvard talks about synthetic happiness. In other words, losing that job was the best thing ever happened to me. You know, thank God I broke my arm, things like this. And it seems it's all in that same bucket there. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, like another another word for that is another another um, um, uh, sort of con uh, sort of conceptual bucket to put that in is is what's often known as like it's our psychological immune system. That is, our psychological immune system begins to create these psychological antibodies to ward off these things and make us uh, and make us feel better. So there so there is. And here's the thing: at least these downward counterfactuals. They do make us feel better, and it's okay to feel better. I mean, it's like like that's that's cool. The problem is, is that if that's the only kind of counterfactual you do, you're missing out on learning and growth. One of the things that struck me here is I've always connected regrets uh, with some form of guilt, mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, you know, the Catholic Church has confession to help you know yeah. assuage guilt and so forth, and I, I think that. Um, I was wondering what your opinion is. Is guilt a natural ramification of regret, or does it depend on the individual, or does it depend on one of these four categories? I think the answer is yes, no, and all of the above. And let me tell you what I mean. <laughs> let me tell you what. Let me. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I. I'll tell you how. I'll tell you. How I think about that. I think that guilt is generally a subset of regret, um, and that it's usually that is. Most guilts, most guilt is regret, but not all regret is guilt. Um, and so, sorry to be like sort of whip out a little bit of out, a little about a little bit of set theory here and early in the morning. But the the um, I think that it's that guilt is generally a regret about a moral action, um, and so it's a subset of it's a, it's a subset of regret. Um, so, for instance, I don't know whether. Um, so if you think about if I regret, um, uh, I got a lot of people in the database, uh, Americans who graduated from college who, who regret not studying abroad when they were in college because they missed that chance. I don't think they feel guilty about that. Um, I do think that the people in the database, the legions of them who regret bullying somebody or cheating on their wife, spouse, um, I think they feel guilt. Um, and so I think that, and, and a lot of times guilt is not always, but a lot of times guilt is a is the result more of an action than an inaction. And with the overall universe of regret, inactions outnumber actions. So that, that's the way I look at it. Now, I think there's a difference between guilt and shame, which is really important for people to understand, which is that guilt is I did a bad thing. Shame is I'm a bad person. And so guilt is functional. There's a reason that we feel guilty. I mean, guilt, guilt is instructive. 
Um, shame is shame is destructive um, because it's a universal assessment of who we are. So it's so it's incredibly debilitating. You make one other interesting point, Alan, though, is it, which is that if you think about you know Catholicism, Catholicism has a tradition, uh, a systematic way to deal with at least some regrets. These these regrets of guilt. We that we confess. Uh, you know we so you lift you 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 lift the burden. There is a, a ritual that you go through to kind of expiate those those sins. Um, Judaism has a, a day in the in the year where you atone for your, 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 you, where you atone for your sins and other so so many religious traditions have systematic ways to deal with regret. Um, the secular world does not, and I think that that's one reason that. It, it's so it's so debilitating. Now the good news is that there are science-based ways to reckon with regret that I think are you know as effective, if not more effective than the, the the mechanisms in a lot of these religious traditions. I want to pick up on what you said before about shame and guilt. I think that's very very useful. It seems to me that shame is about self-worth. Yeah. Uh, if you have high self-worth, you're not going to feel ashamed all that often. Uh, I think guilt is more about like as you say, it's more about errors of uh, commission than omission. But I've also found uh, in my work with people that when people feel guilty, when they have regrets, it sucks the energy out of them. They operate Absolutely. at a lower energy level and it increases their stress and, and stress masks talent, really. Uh, and so I think one of the great uh, powerful points of your book and your research here uh, is that if people can deal with these things constructively, and, you know, the Catholic Church tried to provide some constructive answer, uh, but in a secular manner, that they're going to feel better about themselves and they're going to perform better. Would, would you agree? Absolutely. And, and again, I agree with you completely. And I do think that, you know, feeling is, you know, feeling and performance are, 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 are connected. And I think that the problem we have, again, I, I'm not a deeply religious person at all. I'm just looking at things very analytically saying these religious traditions have mechanisms for dealing with this, this negative emotion. The secular tradition does not, often does, often does not. And so what happens is that when people feel this spear of negative emotion because they're human, because they're experiencing this perfectly human, ubiquitous emotion, they don't know what to do about it. So they either ignore it, you know, whistle past the graveyard, pretend Sinatra-like that they don't have any of these regrets, right. or, or they do what you're talking about, Alan, which is that they feel a sense of shame. They, they say, oh my God, I, have the, I made this mistake, I have this regret, I, as a person, am terrible. This decision or indecision is the full measure of my life. And it's, it's a negative measure. It, 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 I, I'm coming up short. Oh, I feel crappy about that. And then, then that drains it. What we, what we want to do is we want to, you know, don't wallow in our regrets, don't ignore our regrets, confront them, learn from them, use that negative emotion essentially as, as data, as information, as a signal. Well, efficacy and self-worth, you know, are two different things. You can be very efficacious, but still not feel good about yourself. And so right. you might not be performing at your best anyway. Now, you talk here near the end of the book about a three-step process, right? And so what does that entail? Is that is that sort of the the answer to dealing successfully with regrets? Is that is that the, the golden path here? I think it's an answer. Um, I think it's a, I think it's an I think it's an appropriate path. I mean, the way to do it is to you know, I look at it now as kind of inward, outward, forward. So inward is how do you how do you um, frame the regret in yourself? And as we've been talking about, um, if you frame the regret as 
If you frame that decision, okay, let's go back to you on that boat. If you, if you say that moment, that early morning off of five hours off of Montauk is that moment fully defines who I am as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else that's gone on in my life, not that important, but that moment, that's the, that's debilitating. Yeah. Um, and so, so you want to treat yourself with, and the other thing about it is, is that and I'm sure you know this from your, your clients is that especially high achievers, as you're saying, is that when we make mistakes or screw ups, the way we talk to ourselves is brutal. It's cruel. Our self-talk is just lacerating. And there's no evidence that that's effective. So, you know, what you want to do is you want to treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that regrets are part of the human experience and um, that it's a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. Then so that, that's inward. Outward is there's an argument to be made for disclosing regrets. Uh, we tend to think that people will think less of us when we disclose our regrets, when in fact there's a lot of evidence showing they think more of us. They admire our authenticity. They admire our courage. Um, and, and converting this blobby, emotional abstraction into concrete words helps us make sense of it. And finally, you know, the most important thing is you got to draw a lesson from it. Um, and we tend to be pretty good problem solvers, but pretty crappy problem solvers of our own problems, which is why people have coaches, you know? And so, and so what you want to do, I, I mean that. And so what you, there's a certain techniques of self distancing where you can say, you know, um, instead of saying, you know, what should, for me, it's like, instead of saying, what should I do? Even talking to yourself in the second or third person, the third person, what should Dan do? Um, what would I tell my best friend to do? Uh, if I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do? Uh, and so if we go inward, treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt, express outward to disclose, unburden, make sense, and then move forward by extracting a lesson, it's, it, it, you know, there's a, a pile of evidence showing that Processing our regrets properly can help us become better negotiators, help us become better problem solvers, uh, help us uh, think more clearly, even help us find more meaning in life. Uh, when you said uh, we're pretty crappy at solving our own problems, I was about to say thank God, you know, because it keeps me <laughs> working. Uh, right, exactly. Right. So uh, when I look at brilliant leaders, I see two or three traits that are consistent. You know, for example, one is generosity, another is the ability to deal with high degrees of ambiguity, but a third is the willing the willingness to be vulnerable the willingness to say i don't know this or i made an error or i need help uh and that's not a very common human trait uh, but i do find that people like that learn the best so i would think that one aspect of vulnerability is to say to someone let me tell you what i regret absolutely and i i've heard this from readers since the book has come out where where people will say and it's and it's usually business leaders who will say, yeah, so I read this thing and it's like, okay, I was sort of persuaded. So what I decided to do was got my team together and I said, and I told them about a regret that I had and I told them what I learned from it and I told them what I'm going to try to do better. And that triggered the most fruitful conversation we've had in years. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, and I think that that's, I think really, I think that's, I think that's the case. We have, we have a lot of, um, you know, I think regret surfaces a lot of the ways our judgment about other people goes awry. You know, we think that, you know, everything, like we think if we reach out to an old friend, it's gonna be really awkward and they're not gonna care. When in fact, the evidence is that it's not awkward and they do care. Uh, We think that if we, as you say, we reveal a vulnerability, people will think less of us and they often think more of us. Um, You know, we think that, oh, I'm the only person with a regret about kindness or uh, or, or a regret about failure, when in fact, everybody has those things. And so, 
Um, and so the so I think there's a very you know I think it's a very strong argument to be made for almost as in this kind of jujitsu way, whereas a vulnerability is a is a display of strength in a way. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I was at a, a dinner table once, and we were talking about guilt and regrets. And I said, you know, I, I deal with them. I deal with guilt. I don't I don't walk around with guilt. I deal with it. I apologize. I move on. I correct if I can. I learn a lesson and so forth. So I really have no guilt most of the time. And this woman who is a psychologist said to me, that's also the sign of a psychopath. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, again, you see, if well, yes and no, because if you had if you had if you did terrible things and had no guilt, that is a sign of a psychopath. Right. But if you but if you but if you if you do something that you regret, and then take and then acknowledge, you know, acknowledge it, make amends and improve your behavior in the future. That's a healthy way of processing a fundamentally human emotion. Now, there's a metaphysical question, question of whether that, you know, fully extinguishes the regret. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have a strong opinion about that. But but, you know, I, I think that in many cases, when we process our regrets properly, they don't disappear, but they're almost like like um, like ashes. I, the time we have left, I want to shift the conversation a bit uh, to the act of writing. Uh, yeah. I, I met you really years ago when we both happened to be in Nantucket. We communicated by email and you said, uh, I've got my seatbelt fastened. I'm writing my newest book. And I said, I'm writing my newest book as well. But I mean, there's a big difference in that. I'm an anecdotal writer. I use social proof. I use examples. You, I would term as a scientific writer and that you do a, a great deal of research and you validate what you do. So your process for writing uh, and you, you have this huge database now of regrets and, and you cite them in the book and so forth. And you also yeah. cite, you know, validation, your process of writing, uh, is it painful? Is it, is it, uh, elongated? I mean, tell me about how you look at creating a book. It is painful and elongated in ways that I quickly forget once a book is done, but I'm instantly reminded of once I, plunge into a new project. It takes me, I'm very slow. It takes me a long time. I'm slow. I'm deliberate. Um, I'm, you know, I am the quintessential tortoise rather than the hare. I have zero hair DNA in me. <laughs> if you were to, if in 23 and me says that 23 and me says that 86% of my descendants were tortoises. My uh, my personal trainer tells me, listen, Alan, you ought to be happier. You're releasing endorphins. And I tell him I'm endorphinless. And so that <laughs> doesn't help me at all. So, yeah, so, I'm, so I'm pretty I'm pretty slow. I'm pretty slow. I'm pretty slow and laborious. I don't I don't um, you know, I just I don't have epiphanies. Um, I, I look at writing. Um, you and I might have talked about this before. I look at writing um, as a as almost like a, you know, in a blue collar way. Mm. Um, that is what I do is as a writer is, you know, I come into this office on a regular, like I, I'm very rigid in my scheduling. Like I, I will, when I went on writing days, I will come into this office where I'm talking to you from, I will give myself a quota of words that I have to hit that day. And I will not do a single thing until I hit that word number. Really? Um, and, and what's then, your quota? What's your quota? It depends on the day, but I, I try to make a pretty modest quota, maybe 500, 600 words. Oh, that's very um, modest. Yeah, but um, but for me that's a lot, uh, because yeah, for me that's that that's a lot. If I'm writing about something I already know, that's easy. But I don't write books about things I already know. I write books about things I'm trying to know. So <laughs> so so it's so it so it so it's difficult. So you know it, it's difficult. And um, 
But what I do is I, you know, think about it like like I'm like I'm a bricklayer. I come in, I bring my tools, I put up, you know, put a few bricks, mortar it together, come in the next day, put a few more bricks, come in the next day, you know, put up a, put a few more bricks. Like I am doing my job. I am building that wall, you know, brick by brick by brick by brick by brick, and and showing up, um, you know, even on the days that I don't feel like making a wall is essential especially on the days I don't feel like making a wall. People ask me how I write so many books and I tell them I go for volume and not accuracy. And, <laughs> and you would be, Dan, you would be surprised how many people say to me, could you explain that to me? And so I know that, that that's a losing effort. So uh, I think, you know, some of the brilliant stuff you've written in, in like to drive and to sell as human and so forth, uh, which applies to really all of us, uh, everything's about selling and influencing in my opinion. Uh, are these topics that you notice in the in the news in the day to day uh, discussions? Uh, is it something that you feel that okay, I need to learn about this because you have this this intellectual curiosity? I mean, how do you come up with the topic? It depends. I mean, the, the main criterion is is really is it something that I'm um, is it something that I'm deeply 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 interested in? Um, and 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 that's and that's not most things. And that's the thing. I think a lot of times writers get seduced by something that is like appealing for a week or two or a month, but you don't want to spend a year or two years or not joking, the rest of your life on. I wrote a, I wrote a book 21 years ago called Free Agent Nation. And I, I, get, I, get, I get press calls, a couple of press calls a week about that book. So two decades later, I'm still talking about that crap, but, but that's fine because it's like I'm, I'm really I'm really interested in it, but there 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 are many there are very few topics that I want to spend that much time on. There are very few. So so what I do is I I, I basically start wide with say, hey that could be interesting. Hey how about that? And then I start looking at it and I say okay you know uh, some cases some ideas are not books. Uh, some ideas are books, but they're not books that I want to write. And then when you get to that bottom of the funnel, it's a relatively few things. I find that. Like all humans, I changed my mind on things, you know, and I was giving a talk on strategy and I walked up stage and a woman says, what do you think about this approach? I said, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Where'd you get it? She said, from one of your books. Nah. I said, oh, yeah. that approach. So Dan, listen, I, I appreciate you being with me. I, I could do this all day long. Uh, could you tell listeners how to access your stuff, where they can go to find out more about you and the work you've done? Sure, the best, the best place is just to go to my website, which is danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. We've got a free newsletter, we've got all kinds of videos, all kinds of free resources, and everything that you could possibly want. Do you know what your next book's gonna be yet? No. Okay, I believe you. <laughs> so some yeah, people, I don't. I believe you, okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this, it's been a great discussion. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Alan, always a pleasure. Take care of yourself. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.